Okay, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the second book of Kings, which is where we are. And we're going to pick up this morning, uh, looking first of all at chapter 3. Uh, before we do that, let's just uh, bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you that your word is living and powerful. And that, Father, that your word brings instruction for us as to how we should live our lives. Lord, how we should order our lives. And Father, we pray this morning that you would just speak to us a little more of your goodness, of your grace, of your faithfulness. Lord, of our need to be obedient and to follow you in all things. So Father, just speak to each of us individually. And Lord, as a fellowship also, we pray you lead us and guide us forward. Lord, as we look for the return of Jesus, as we get excited that our Savior will soon be coming back. Lord, just stir our hearts again. As we read your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are still focusing very much on the northern kingdom. So we've got the split, of course, of the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, typically known as Israel. And we're focusing now on this period of time around about Jehoram. He was the son of Ahab, grandson of Omri. Um, if you remember, we looked last time, Ahab's first son, or eldest son, Ahaziah, had come to the throne. Uh, he'd got out, fallen through, or fallen off the balcony or something, and hurt himself. Uh, ends up dying, uh, seeking, of course, Baal Zebub, the Lord of Flies, to give him some sort of answer. And he's intercepted by Elijah uh, en route, uh, who then warns him that he should have gone to God. And as a result of that, he ends up dying. And then we also saw last time how the Lord translated Elijah took him alive from earth to heaven. And it's something we see a number of times. We see it with Enoch in the book of Genesis, and we see it, of course, with the church, uh, recorded very much in the book of Thessalonians. First Thessalonians speaks of the time that the Lord will translate the church. Uh, those who are alive and remain, Paul says, um, the Lord will just take us from here. Uh, without dying, we will receive our new bodies and then we'll go uh, up to heaven and there we'll be protected as the Lord then brings his wrath upon this unbelieving world. Of course, to many it's just a fantasy, but to us who know scripture and who know God's faithfulness and the way God works, it's our blessed hope. Uh, Paul speaks of the blessed hope of the upward calling. That's what we're talking about. That time when we're called up to be with the Lord. So for us, we see lots of types and shadows and models in all of these things. And as Paul mentioned a number of times, the things that were written aforetime are there for our learning. So that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. So we carry on now looking at the life of, as I said, Ahab's other son, Joram. Uh, he comes to the throne because Ahaziah had no children himself. Now we're going to see this king will reign now for 12 years. And it will be during his ministry that Elisha, who's now taken over the mantle from Elijah. Remember Elisha's prayer that he would have double the anointing, double the portion um, of blessing upon his work and ministry that Elijah had had. Elijah had said, well, if you are with me until the end then that will be the case. So we pick up in chapter 3 and we read verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. So we just give a brief summary of the, the reign. Jehoshaphat down south in Judah, one of the good kings, and we'll look at more if the Lord tarries and we move off into Chronicles, uh, we'll see more detail about Jehoshaphat and his reign. 
He was a good king. He loved the Lord. And some really significant things uh, that we read about about his life in Chronicles. But nevertheless, we're told of Jehoram, verse 2, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. But not like his father. So not as bad as Ahab and like his mother. Remember, his mother was Jezebel. So he didn't kind of go as far as they did. And we're told, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. So, some half attempt. But really, what good is it? You know, a lot of people make that kind of half effort to try and do things right. To try and live their life in a way that God will be pleased with. And they'll make comments that, you know, well, I'm sure I'll go to heaven because I've done lots of good things. And that's their basis. And so many people, it's, just, it's amazing almost, how, how many people you can speak to that have that mindset. Well, I've done good things, I'm not a bad person, therefore I can go to heaven. And that's the standard they think that God will use to judge. Of course, they have no concept of holiness. That God is holy. And if God is holy, he has to bring his judgment and justice upon us. Because we are not holy, we've broken God's laws. We said before that there's two wonderful truths in Scripture. One of them is a terrifying prospect. The other one is a joy beyond compare. The first that is terrifying is that God is good. As we've said, that if God is good, what does he do with people like us who are not good? You see, God has to bring his judgment and justice to bear upon us. The other wonderful truth in Scripture Summarized, of course, in John 3.16, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the good news. That there is a way to escape God's wrath. Because God allowed Jesus to take that wrath for us. It's just an incredible transaction. And we're told elsewhere that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we would become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What an incredible exchange. You know, all of your bad stuff, everything you've thought, said, and done, taken away. And in return, you're given the righteousness of Jesus Christ who never sinned. Incredible. So, Jehoram, like so many people, kind of went halfway, tried to do some good stuff, but ultimately, he didn't do right in the sight of the Lord. We're told, nevertheless... He cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel sin. He's that refrain again. He just keeps coming back through the book of Judges. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and again, the first king of Israel after the kingdom divided, which made Israel to sin. What impact that one man had had on so many other lives? You know, what impact do you have on other people's lives? And we're told that he departed not therefrom. So just as Jeroboam had done, so Jehoram now carries on in the same kind of uh, God-rejecting path. And then we're told verse 4, and this is something that was alluded to last time as well, that Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs, a hundred thousand rams with the wool. Now, what had happened was that when Omri had come to the throne, so Jehoram's granddad, Ahab's father, when uh, Omri had come to the throne, he put Moab under this tax, subdued them and made them pay. And of course, they were their typical trade was in sheep. So Omri makes them deliver this tax of sheep each year uh, to Israel. Now that had carried on under the reign of Ahab, but now that Omri and Ahab has gone, 
Well, so we find that Moab now rebels. And this king, Misha of Moab, decides, I'm not going to put up with this any longer. And so he rebels now against uh, Jehoram. And we told, verse 5, But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now we saw that mentioned last week. And as I said, historically we know that this is a, a true account. Of course we trust scripture anyway. But so many times we find it corroborated by extra biblical sources. Uh, other things that have been found from archaeology and so on. And this steel, as it's known, the Misha steel, uh, again around about 840 BC, which fits perfectly with the time frame we know from scripture, just speaks of how the Moabites believed that their god, uh, Chemosh, had allowed them to come under the servitude of Israel because of their disobedience to their god, um, and so on. But uh, this has been discovered, and, and yeah, etc. I just want to just read to you, and I've, we've done this before, but it doesn't hurt to go over it again just briefly, because there's lots of kings that are mentioned in Scripture. So I just want to draw attention again to Professor Robert D. Wilson. Now, this book that he wrote, Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, um, it was really born from his study and experience. He could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. Now, I work in an office where there's uh, a whole variety of cultures. Some people uh, can speak a number of languages. We've got one lady in the office that speaks five languages. I, I just speak two. I speak English and gobbledygook. Um, and, you know, but some people are very fluent in the number. But 45, not even current languages, but ancient languages, some incredible task. By the age of 25, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. I mean, that's incredible on its own. But it goes on. He'd memorize the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. Wow. What is it that David says in Psalm 119? Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's going to do something to you, isn't it? If, you're, if the word of God is memorized in that kind of way. Uh, in um, Spurgeon's Treasury of David, which is his commentary on Psalms, um, he speaks a number of times of people that have memorized the entire book of Psalms or entire portions of the Old Testament or New Testament. You know, and, and for us, how much of scripture have we committed to memory? You know, how much of the... Things of the world have we committed to memory? You know, so many things we allow in, but do we really memorize scripture? And this individual again, the whole of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation he'd memorized. And again, many of the Old Testament books also memorized in Hebrew, not just in the English. And this is one of the quotes he makes. He says, For 45 years continuously I've devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament, in all its languages, in all of its archaeology in all of its translations. The critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim to themselves all knowledge, all virtue, and all love of the truth. Now, isn't that true that critics talk about the way they love truth? and they're, they're, it's just, One of their favorite phrases is, all scholars agree. And he says, well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the ground of evidence that I cannot investigate. He says, after I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are about 1,250,000 of them. And by the way, it doesn't include vowels in the original Hebrew. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe variations in the text, in the manuscripts, notes of the Masoretes in all their various versions, parallel passages and contextual emendations of critics, 
And then I had to classify the results of every character, every continent, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science. Something that's based on evidence, not opinion. And he says, the result of those 45 years of study, which I have given to the text, has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. That gives you some confidence. I mean, people like to talk about experts. Well, this guy is an expert. He really is an expert by the world standard. And he's come to this conclusion, that there's not a single page of the Old Testament that we need to have any doubt about. He says, for example, to illustrate his accuracy, and this is the bit that's applicable to us now as we're studying through kings, there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned, not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. Now, we're looking at just one such on, uh, a monument now that's been uncovered, of Misha, this king of Moab. He goes on and says, there are 195 consonants in those 25 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants out of the 195 that have ever been called into question. He says the names are all in exactly the same way as they've been inscribed on the monuments which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years Compare this accuracy with the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian at Alexandria in Egypt, about 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt, 38 in all. Of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria. In only one case can we tell who he's talking about, and that one's not spelt correctly. Or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You could not make, out, make them out at all if you did not know some of the outside sources. If anyone talks about the Bible, ask him about the kings mentioned in it. And for you now, we're studying through kings, we're seeing these other kings from other nations mentioned. All of these were real historical characters that have been verified. He says, there are 29 kings referred to, 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments. Every one of these is given their right name in the Bible, their right country and their right place in correct chronological order. I mean, there's no other history book in the world that has got this kind of accuracy. And he says, think what this means. It's staggering. And it just gives us confidence that when we're reading the Bible, we really are reading about historical events. One of the things I've said before, and I know that people use this, and not intentionally to uh, be derogatory towards scripture, but people talk about Bible stories. You know, the story of Daniel, or the story of David and Goliath. These are not stories, they're historical accounts. And sometimes we do a disservice if we just speak of them as stories, because we have in our mind a story being something that is fabricated possibly, something that's made up, something that's not entirely true. But these are real events. And have been proven historically to have been so. That's the basis of what we believe. This is why we are proud to be Christians. Because it's not some blind leap of faith. It's the truth. Jesus himself said, thy word is truth. What a wonderful foundation we build our lives upon. So we read on. It says, and King Jehoram went out of Samaria at the same time and numbered all Israel. Now, you may remember that numbering uh, was the 
sin that led to the plague in Israel that killed many. That's recorded in First Chronicles 21. David had decided he wanted to find out how big and how strong his army was, so he kind of sends out. But David's reason for doing that was very different than the situation here. You see, David was really looking for himself. It was, it was a pride thing. It leads to this plague, as I said, and that led to him purchasing the threshing floor of Ornum, which is where eventually the temple will be built, and he purchases that place and offers this uh, offering and sacrifice there to atone for his sin. But Jehoram's reason for numbering is not pride, but it's, asset- it's to ascertain his military strength for the very real reason that he's about to go into battle. Jesus himself spoke of somebody going into battle and said, really, you know, you need to find out whether you've got the resource to do it. Actually, the context of what Jesus was saying was, really, before you commit to serving me, are you going to go through with it? Are you really prepared to take that step of faith and walk with me? You know, we read in Matthew 13 of those different types of soils. And there are people that receive the word with all joy. And within the cares of this world, choke out the word of God. You know, there's a lot of people like that. They want to give this Christian thing a go and it seems like a good idea for them, but they're not prepared to carry on with it. Uh, Just evidence is that that seed never really took root in their hearts. But Jehoram here wanted to know whether he's got the strength to go against this uh, army of Moab. And we read... um, and he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. So Jehoshaphat this time agrees. He says, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. Now, it seems to be that Jehoshaphat is asking the question, Okay, which way are we going to go? And it seems to be that uh, Jehoram is saying, well, I think the best route, let's go through Edom to Moab. (laughs) Jehoshaphat, we find, was one of of Judah's five good kings. He sought the Lord. We've seen this already. This is the third member of Omri's family, in a sense, that Jehoshaphat has been allied with. See, previously he'd joined Ahab in that ill-fated battle that saw Ahab being killed. He went out, if you remember, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, got a great plan, Jehoshaphat. Well, let's go out to battle. I'm going to go in disguise. You go dressed as the king. (laughs) And Jehoshaphat somehow goes, yeah, that's a good idea, yeah. And of course they know who to aim at. They realize, by God's grace, that Jehoshaphat isn't the one they're after. But in that battle, randomly, an arrow is uh, fired off and uh, ends up hitting Ahab and he dies. So that was one of the alliances. Um, we also find that um, Jehoshaphat later refuses to ally himself with Ahaziah, who is Ahab's son. So on th- that occasion, he chose not to. But this time, for whatever reason, he chooses to go along with this plan. And we read, so the king of Israel went and the king of Judah, and then we read, and the king of Edom. So now they speak to the king of Edom and they say, is it all right to pass through your land? Oh, and by the way, do you want to join us? Because we've got a common enemy here. And they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. So it's kind of a long route round. And we're told, for there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Very much a glass half empty type, I think you'll agree. Just immediately, oh, this is all going wrong. Not trusting God, of course. His life has not been one of trusting God from the start. You know, this kind of begs the question about our response to trials as well. And we've been going through, we've been looking 
in our Bible studies, going through the book of James, seeing what our response should be. And James makes it very clear that we should consider trials all joy. Now, to the natural mind, that doesn't work. You see, what often happens is we consider them just like Joram here. We consider them to be a judgment from God. When you go through a trial, do you think, oh, God's getting at me because... You know, just think about it. You know, for any of you who are fathers, oh, and by the way, happy Father's Day for the fathers. But for those of you who are fathers, you know, would you purposely go out of your way to punish your child you know, of course, a good, godly father should chastise. Scripture makes it very clear. You know, you spare the rod, you're going to spoil the child. Because children need discipline. We need discipline as God's children. But the suggestion that God would just pick on you, just have a go at you because of this or that or the other, and a lot of people have that kind of mindset. And certainly Jehoram here, thinking that God is just going to give him a really hard time and so on. You know, again, James says we should consider the trials that we go through all joy, recognizing that it's the hand of a loving God, working to make you complete and perfect. Lacking nothing is what James tells us. You know, when you go through a trial, and as we've seen, we've gone through in our Bible studies, and we will, you know, it's not optional. It's not one of those kind of, you know, you can choose the things you want in your course through life. And actually, no, I'd rather not have trials, thank you. No, we're all going to have trials. We all experience them. And the reason God allows them, and God engineers many of them, is to make us perfect and complete. God wants to equip us with everything that we need. You know, we've talked so many times, there's lots of examples that we can... Give. I still love the, the butterfly one, and if you want to know more details about this, I'm sure Bob will happily sit down and uh, take you through with butterflies. But, you know, when a, a butterfly is kind of becoming the butterfly, when it's coming out of its chrysalis, it struggles immensely. But that struggle forces its fluid into its wings that allows it then to fly. If it didn't have that struggle, it could never fly. You know, a baby, when it cries... Sometimes it can pull on our heartstrings. We don't sometimes like hearing babies cry, but of course it's good for them. It stretches their lungs. We recognize that it's a natural part of their development. You know, you may have to cast your mind sometime back, but we've all at some point had growing pains. As our bodies change and grow and stretch, as we move from being children to, to adults. You know, but it's necessary. And so often in our spiritual lives we experience those things and God allows them because he wants us to be perfect and complete. So again, how do we respond to these things? Really, our perception is going to depend upon our standing with God. Jehoram's standing with God is one of, he's in rebellion against God. So therefore, everything that happens he assumes is God's judgment. You know, if you are in rebellion against God because of anything in your life, and something goes wrong, immediately you will think, this is God getting at me. This is God judging me for for this particular thing. If you're walking with God, if you've got a relationship with God, where you're reading his word, where you're praying, where you're not allowing the sin in your life, and anything that does happen, you just confess, you bring before the throne. You know, when things go wrong, you don't look at it that God is judging me. It's like God is giving me an opportunity to grow. Lord, how are you going to use this situation? All depends upon our standing with God. 
But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Now this is the second time Jehoshaphat has done that. Uh, Micah is the, the prophet last time that comes onto the scene. And of course, we're told then Ahab didn't like him because he only ever brought bad news. But on this occasion we read, And one of the kings, the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now, quite how and where, why Elisha is so close by, I, I, we don't know. But they've gone down to kind of go this circuitous route round to get to Moab. And they've come to obviously where Elisha was or somewhere near. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. Obviously Jehoshaphat's heard about this man. That he's carried on in the ministry, the power of Elijah. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat uh, and the king of Edom went down to him. <laughs> kind of do wonder whether it's a little bit late to ask this question because they've already set out on their journey. Yeah, that's another thing we do, isn't it? All right, we're going to do this and we get en route and then we go, oh, uh, Lord, <laughs> would you bless this? You know, we need to get on our knees and seek God before we step out. As uh, I think Chuck Misler, a number of times, has said, you know, always check the destination before buying the ticket. And that's a, that's a good piece of advice for us in regard to temptation, just in regard to life itself. Think where it's going. You know, and check with God first whether you should make the journey. But at this point, anyway, they're en route, they're in this predicament, they've got no water, they think they're going to die, or certainly Jehoram does. Jehoshaphat's saying, let's, let's ask God, shall we? And then, okay, so they're going to go and ask Elisha. Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the province of thy father. It's a good response, really. And to the province of thy mother. So, really, just very much like Ahaziah had done. Elisha's saying, look, why are you asking God? You know, you've never trusted God before. Why do you want to trust God now? Wasn't well, that true of the people of the world? They run into predicaments and problems, and what do they want to do? Suddenly they want to ask our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because their gods seem to come up short every time, don't they? And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Well, if he's so sure, why are you even asking the question? But again, this is very negative opinion. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. This is really interesting. Because God will give him an answer, but only because of the presence of a righteous man. You see, God regards Jehoshaphat because he was upright, because he served God. And it's interesting because we know that God's judgment on this world right now is restrained due to the presence of the Spirit in dwelt church. We read about that in Second Thessalonians. The mystery of iniquity being restrained. Because the one who is restraining it is doing so. But there's going to come a time that the church will be removed and then the Lord will not regard those prayers for mercy on this world and God will bring his judgment. Interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, you know, God speaks there of unbelieving loved ones being sanctified by believing spouses. You see, the effect that we have Sometimes we don't appreciate. You see, God here, effectively listening to the cry of a rebellious king, 
who's rejected God in his life, but is listening to him because of the presence of somebody who's righteous. There's quite a lot of implications to this. You know, how far does that extend? To family members, to work colleagues? You know, is the Lord protecting people that are around you? Because of you. Because you have an opportunity to witness to them. It just begs some very interesting questions. I'll let you take that and pray that through. But don't discount the effect that you have as a servant of Jesus Christ. Of course, just thinking of the situation in Genesis, that God had said he'd spare the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous found there. Just ten. Abraham doesn't have the confidence or want to try God's patience by going down any further than that, but he comes down from 50 all the way down to 10. And God says, even if there's 10 righteous, I won't bring judgment. Interesting, isn't it? How God sees you and you're standing in Christ. Anyway, moving on. And so Elisha now says, now bring me a minstrel. Now, there are times my wife's been looking for inspiration and she's asked for a minstrel, but that, of course, is the uh, the, camera, the, the, the chocolate variety. And we're not talking about it. He's not asking for chocolate. We're not talking about those kind of minstrels. He's talking about a musician. Somebody who's going to come and worship God in his presence. Someone who's going to come and play music. And we're told it came to pass that when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now, notice it's when the minstrel played. Now, I think it's just interesting because it highlights the role of worship, and particularly music, in drawing close to God. And we are, countless times in the book of Psalms, commanded to praise God. It's something that we should do. We should praise God. And music is something that God has given us as a very special gift to allow us to, to draw close. Uh, it's been said before, and I quite like the, the phrase, of course it's not a biblical statement, but that music takes words, somewhere that words on their own can't go. I say it's not a, a biblical statement, but it just it, it is illustrative that actually music does something. God has engineered music. I mean, music is an incredible thing. Yeah, we don't see the animal kingdom enjoy music. Of course, we have wonderful birdsong. I had the opportunity the other morning to sit in the garden and listen to the birds singing, and it was wonderful. Just so many varieties, and you can hear sometimes you hear one bird singing and another one starts singing and you know just this lovely kind of chorus but it's not in a sense as harmonious as the music that we are are used to hearing and can enjoy and god has given us this wonderful blessing and privilege of being able to enjoy music and of course you know we read of satan that he had effectively built within his physical frame and his body timbrels and pipes you know, effectively he was responsible seemingly for the worship in heaven. He was right before the throne. As we said before, the, you know, if you follow that through, it means that all the world's problems began with the worship leader. <laughs> but you know, worship is a very special thing. And I think sometimes to just praise God with our voices, not just speech, but in song. It just draws us into a place before God's throne that's pleasing to God. And it, it certainly is 
beneficial to us from a physical point of view. Studies have been done, and we've mentioned this before, and you know, the people that, that go to church typically are healthier. Worship and singing does something. It helps from a respiratory point of view as well. So, yeah, this musician is brought, and he plays music. And as that music is playing, often up to God, then God's word comes. And this is one of the reasons that we, when we meet together, have a time of worship. You know, I, I see our worship time like a spiritual bath. You know, you come in after a long day, and you just want to get the world off of you, you know? Certainly for me, working in London, there's been lots of reports recently talking about how polluted London is. I think Oxford Street is the most polluted place in the world at the moment. In terms of all the fumes and dust and dirt and talking about banning buses from Oxford Street and so on. You know, and I work just up the road from there. You know, I come home and I just want to have a wash and get all the grime of London off of me. But, you know, we're all in the position where we are in the world. And worship does the same thing. It's like a spiritual bath for us, just to come and worship God. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, you know, we, we have the first few songs sometimes on a Sunday, and it's going to, oh, it just, just seems a bit hard. And then all of a sudden, something breaks. And God's Spirit just starts moving and touching us and challenging us and drawing us closer to Him. You know, I think God is doing a wonderful thing with, with worship as well. You know, we've had great hymn writers through the years who have given us wonderful truths that we've been able to sing out. And they're just as valid today as when they were first penned. But I do think that God is also working through some of the people that he's raised up today in some of the songs that are being written. There's some songs being written that really are stirring our hearts. And I think the Lord is doing a work of getting us ready. You know, we've talked before about, you know, the rapture. And the, one of the things that typically takes place with a Jewish bride before her wedding day is that she goes through this process. There's a kind of a ritual bath called the mikvah. And all the impurities, all the things of this world, nail polish, whatever else, all removed, all got ready for, to cleanse her totally so she's ready for her wedding day. And we're told, of course, that we are to be washed with the water of the word. And I think the Lord is doing that. I think the Lord is washing us and getting us ready. You know, there's lots of songs today that speak of surrender, of holiness. Of the magnificence of God. Again, of course, all through the ages there have been these things. But I do think it's interesting, just looking over the last... 50 years, if you look at how worship has changed. And a lot of worship has become very, more, very much more personal. It's very much more intimate than it's been, I think, at any time in the history of the church. A lot of worship through the history of the church has been very corporate. It's been very good. But I think the Lord is doing something. And of course, all of this is valid. It's not that one's better than another. That's why we have a mix of things in our worship here. But it really is a very wonderful, special thing that God's given so this musician plays and as he plays the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha and he said thus says the Lord make this valley full of ditches for thus says the Lord you shall not see wind neither shall you see rain yet the valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts now just an important thing to highlight the Lord says not that it will not rain or there will not be any wind but that you'll not see it 
So whatever was going to happen wouldn't be something they would observe themselves. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. You know, in other words, that's not a problem to God to do that. He says, because he will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. So for Jehoram, all this negativity, suddenly, reality check. You're dealing with God here. He says, and you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. can make life of the Moabites very difficult from this point. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered. Notice again sacrifice here. I just wonder whether Jehoshaphat was the one that was instigating that. Let's offer a morning sacrifice. Because of course that was part of what they should do. A morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice offered to the Lord. And I'm sure that Jehoshaphat is the one behind this. Saying let's offer that sacrifice to God as we should according to the law. So they offer this morning sacrifice. And behold there came water by the way of Edom. And the country was filled with water. Now this is reading from Jameson, Fawcett and Brown. They say far from the Israelite camp... In the eastern mountains of Edom, a great fall of rain, a kind of cloudburst took place, by which the wadi was once filled, without their either seeing the wind or the rains. The divine interpretation was shown by introducing the laws of nature to the determined end, and in the predetermined way. That's a quote from Kyle, Kyle Dillich. Um, it brought not only aid to the Israelite army in their distress, but by a plentiful water, but destruction on the Moabites. So God does two things. Because remember, they're thirsty for seven days. They've been marching. They're thirsty. That's the first thing that causes them to cry out. But also they're about to face this enemy. Well, the God has already told them to dig these ditches, which they've done. And now God allows this rain to come down. So all of a sudden, where's this rain come from? Well, further up the, the valley... There'd obviously been rain and it had just come down through the night. And as they look up, they see. And we read verse 21. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings would come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. You see, they look out, they see the sun glistening off the water, but it looks red. So they assume it's blood. They assume that the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah and Edom have all started fighting against each other, and that everybody's being wiped out. It's not uncommon with some of the confederacies at that time, historically. And when they came to the camp of Israel, <laughs> far, far from them being wiped out, they're there, they're ready. And we read, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites. And they're totally taken by surprise with this. So that they fled before them. But they went forward smiting the Moabites, even in their country. And they beat down the cities on every good piece of land, cast every man his stone, and felled it. And uh, they stopped, stopped all the wells of water, and felled all the good trees. This is just as God had said through Elisha. Only in Ker, Harash, left lay the stones thereof. Howbeit, uh, the slings went about and smote it. 
And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Eden. But they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. So this king offers his own son as a sacrifice. Now that's not the man. You see, yes, God offered his son. But his son was willing. This king doing something that was abhorrent to God. And we read, of course, that Moab had this great indignation against Israel because Israel had been the one that had instigated this and had led this because they'd stopped paying tribute and so on. God's dealing with this king. It's a very sad situation in terms of the way that those nations were. And of course we read elsewhere that this is what the nations that were inhabiting the lands, or the land of Canaan did. They did these in pagan rituals, offering their children to foreign deities and so on. Well, we're going to pick it up from there. We'll leave it from there this morning. Um, next time we're going to look, though, um, as we move into the next chapter, chapter 4, at five specific miracles that Elisha does that speak of God's grace. And each one of those miracles speaks about the way that God works in our lives right now. And so, although, because you look at these miracles, it's like, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Well, because each one of these represents something different. So please read ahead. Read through chapter 5 and onwards, and we'll pick up from there in our study next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you there are so many lessons in these things for us. Lord, first and foremost, just that call to obedience once again. And Father, we thank you for Jehoshaphat that just had that hunger and desire to seek you, to seek your voice, to look for your leading and guidance. And Father, I pray that we would do the same, that we wouldn't just run ahead, but Lord, that we'd learn to, to seek you. Father, help us not to be so arrogant as to try and do things in our own way and our own strength. Father, also help us to enjoy the wonderful gift of worship and music that you've allowed us to have, that we can lift our voices in praise to our King and look forward to that time when before the throne we will sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, knowing that, Lord, for eternity we'll be able to sing your praises. So, Lord, these things this morning, again, just impress them upon our hearts. Speak to each of us, Lord, we're in different places, but you know every heart. Stir us, Lord, challenge us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.